Our sermon this morning is taken from our continuing reading through the book of 1 Kings. I would encourage you to join with me, opening your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 15. 1 Kings 15. As we continue to read about the kings that God raised up for his people. Particularly today, we're going to be taking a look at two kings of Judah, Abijam and his son Asa. Now, um, Abijam is listed actually as Abijah in First Chronicles. Whenever you see the uh, the end of the of a name J A H, okay, it's short for Yahweh. All right, so Abijah would be uh, my father is God. So he, uh, however, was a wicked enough man that the author of Kings decided <laughs> that he was going to make him a Baijam. And it was probably the case that the, uh, uh, that the holy ones who loved the Lord in Israel, they changed his, uh, his name in their correspondence and speaking to one another. Probably not to his face, but, uh, but generally speaking. So he is known as a Baijam. Uh, that's why there's a difference between the two. But before we go to the word of God, let's go to the God of the word. Let's ask for his help. Gracious and holy God, I ask that you would now be the light of our minds, that you would help us to understand your word better. Oh, Lord, please give me the strength that I need to preach. Lord, I am weak, but you are strong. I am a man with feet of clay. I am no better than my father's, Lord, but you have the ability to take even a vessel that is not particularly honorable and use it for whatever purpose you have. I pray, Lord, that as your word goes forth, that your people would have ears to hear, that even if they are offended, Lord, that they would take these things to heart, that they would hear and they would apply them. Oh, Lord, may it be so through your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. 1 Kings, chapter 15, and I am going to be reading verses 1 through 15. Mind you, this is the word of the Lord. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam, became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maacah, the granddaughter of Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had, not, uh, which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by setting up his son after him and by establishing Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him in all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. Now the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah. And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. So Abijam rested with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David. Then Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king over Judah. And he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His grandmother's name was Maacah, the granddaughter of Abishalom. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David, 
And he banished the perverted persons from the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. Also, he removed Maaka, his grandmother, from being queen mother because she had made an obscene image of Asherah. And Asa cut down her obscene image and burned it by the brook of Kidron. But the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord all his days. He also brought into the house of the Lord the things which his father had dedicated and the things which he himself had dedicated, silver and gold and utensils. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What is it that makes somebody a good leader? I want you to be thinking about that as we're going through this. Uh, Whether that leader is a president or a king or an emperor or something perhaps less important in the eyes of the world, a, a father, an officer, a headmaster. What is it that makes them good leaders? Uh, I happen to be a, uh, you may know this, I love statistics, I'm a, I'm a survey junkie. Uh, so I wondered if anybody had ever polled Americans asking that question, at least in the modern age. What is it that makes a good leader? I was interested to find that out. Uh, and on that question, I found one company that had done so, they had polled Americans nationwide just before the 2016 election. And here were their results. Uh, they actually, they, they varied widely according to the age group that was answering. So they, they split them up that way. The top three for millennials were the following, uh, that the leader be highly educated, that he be charismatic and motivating, and that he be compassionate. That was their, their top three. The top three for the 65 and older wing, that is uh, on the opposite side of the spectrum, were that he be strong and decisive, that he be patriotic, and that he be able to command respect from other countries. Now, uh, there were some other traits that were considered very important by the very young and the very old. But interestingly enough, not the people in between, the 35 to 64 group. They didn't consider these ones to be very important at all. Uh, The first one amongst the millennials was open-mindedness, that he be open-minded. The other one was that he have a sense of humor, that he be able to crack jokes and that they actually be funny. And finally, the quality that they were looking for was honesty. Although while those groups said that was important, judging by the candidates they were choosing, I have my doubts as to whether that was really that important to them at all. But it was funny to me that the word of God doesn't view any of those criteria as important, really, in a leader. They were so important to Americans, but the Bible doesn't, a sense of humor is, for instance, not enlisted as a virtue anywhere in the Bible. At that point, Solomon cracked a joke. Everybody thought it was wildly funny, and they came from miles around to hear his comedy routine. That's not what they they say. There are other qualities, of course, of a good leader, wisdom amongst them. But generally speaking, the ones that Americans thought were very important aren't listed as that important at all, and certainly not the most important quality of a leader. That we see in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, all the historical books, whenever they're talking about kings, it's repeated again and again. But it wasn't one of those things that people liked. Now there were, of course, there were leaders in ancient Israel 
who were highly educated. We can think of Solomon. There were leaders who were charismatic and motivating. We can think of Absalom, for instance. Uh, they were strong and decisive, uh, patriotic. They commanded respect from other nations. And yet those kings are condemned in Scripture despite those things that we think are so important. Abijah, for instance, who we read about before, or Abijam here in 1 Kings 15, uh, the son of Rehoboam, he actually won a great battle over Jeroboam and the northern kingdom. And that's detailed in 2 Chronicles 13, which has a lot more information about him. We learn he was strong, he was decisive, he was charismatic, he was motivating, he was patriotic, he was even courageous. And he probably could crack a good joke in the midst of the court as well. But he's only given a few lines in this chapter, and they are to tell us that he was a bad king, that he was a terrible leader. What did he do that was so terrible? Did he increase inflation in the nation? No, we don't read that he did that. In verse 3, we read, And he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. So if he had walked in the sins of his father, what then were the sins of his father Rehoboam? Well, we don't have to go very far to find them. They're listed for us in the previous chapter in 1 Kings 14, starting with verse 22. It says this, Now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, which they committed more than all that their fathers had done. For they built for themselves high places, sacred pillars, and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also perverted persons in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations, which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. What was Rehoboam's great sin that Abijam continued in? It was to allow the worship of the false gods of the Canaanites to continue along with false worship of the true God in ways and in places that he had not said they should worship him. It also mentions, and it is very strong on this particular subject, it also mentions he allowed perverted persons, that would be male shrine prostitutes. Uh, The KJV is even more blunt about this. It just says sodomites. He allowed them to proliferate throughout the land. This was not what his grandfather David had done. And David, as we go through these books, will remain the gold standard for good kings. He is the the measure by which all the others are are compared. So if like father, like son, we see Rehoboam, bad king. He has a son, Abijam, bad king. Both of them disregard what the Lord commanded, particularly in regard to worship and morality, public morals. They allow things to go on in the nation that should never have been allowed. They normalize sin within the nation. If father and son were both like that, we might expect that the next son the grandson of Rehoboam, would be the same. If that was an absolute rule, like father, like son, then we could expect that Abjam's son Asa would be equally wicked as his father. But that's not the case. The Lord intervened, and what did he do? He gave a good son to a bad father. Why? Was it because while perhaps Asa had a bad dad, he had other great relatives 
Well, that sometimes happens, doesn't it? I've, I've actually, one of the things that's impressed me on many an occasion is we've had a pastor coming and he is coming to be ordained or he's, uh, he's at the beginning of his, his moving towards the pastorate and he's telling the presbyters how it was that the Lord worked in his heart, called him to faith and then gave him this certainty that he was called to be a pastor. And often what they will say is while I was not, my parents, my mother perhaps, if they were raised in a, a single parent household or my father, they were not religious. But they'll point to the faith of their grandparents. It was my grandmother, it was my grandfather who led me to faith and showed me the way that I should walk. So we see, you know, a skipping of a generation, but then that, that, godly, that godly generation starting again. I've heard many a pastor say that, but that was not the case in Asa's life. His grandmother, Ma'aka, who was actually the granddaughter of Absalom, that's Abishalom in here uh, in 1 Kings, but Absalom, she attempted, he of course was the one who attempted to overthrow his father David. She was an Asherah worshiper, and she, out of her own income obviously, had paid to have this obscene image made for Asherah worship. Uh, the Asherah pole that we read in, it was actually, it was a phallic symbol. It was literally an obscene symbol in the midst of Israel, an abomination before God's face that was present there every day. So, no, she was not the inspiration for his godliness, not at all. What was it? Well, it was God's grace. And why did God do it? Well, we know God did it, we're told here, for the sake of David. And not just because David was, was a great guy, but to fulfill the covenant that God had made with David. One of the most important covenants, and covenants obviously are promises between two parties that are solemnly administered and often sealed in blood. In the case of David, God had made a great covenant with him in 2 Samuel 7. He had told him, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. God was never going to entirely, therefore, cut off the line of the kings of Judah until the promised king, who would reign forever, would come forth. A descendant, literally, from David's line. And that, of course, was fulfilled in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. The son of David, Hosanna to the son of David, the crowds called. For they knew that he was of the tribe of Judah. And they had hopes that this was the Messiah, the one whom God had promised. And he is. He is the Messiah. So bad old Abijam has a good son, Asa. And what made Asa good was not his sense of humor. It is explained in verse 11, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. How does the Bible judge Asa to be a good king? Well, it doesn't apply this subjective changing standard, a cultural standard that changes on a regular basis. I remember speaking to a, uh, a young man who was getting out of the military, uh, and it was at the time that uh, the don't ask, don't tell policy had been removed. And um, he had had a struggle with one of his sergeants who wanted him to be the one who trained him in the new army virtues, the, the new army values that were coming in. And he put it before him, you know, today it's homosexuality. What if uh, next, you know, gen, you know, a few years from now it's killing prisoners or something like that? You're, there, I, I don't see any basis for our changing morality. You told me this was wrong for many years. Now it's right. What suddenly made it right? There's no objective standard. Well, God, while cultures 
have been notorious for, for changing their standards. God's standards don't change. They're based upon his very nature. They're based upon the moral law. What was wrong a hundred years ago in the eyes of God is still wrong today and a thousand years ago and 2,000 years ago, 4,000, 6,000, all the way back to creation and before that. If something is wrong, it's always been wrong. But Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He may have been an imperfect man and yet he loved the Lord. And he had a faith in him, and therefore he acted on the basis of God's commandments out of faith. Asa did what was right in God's eyes. He was a leader who remembered, and this is a critical quality for any leader. He remembered he was in that position. He was reigning by God's appointment. And if you are a leader today, I'll get more on this later. We'll talk about it in a little while. But if you are a leader in whatever area you are, remember that God has put you in that place to reign as his vice regent, whether it's in a family, in a school, in a unit, in a company, or in some government position. If you're there, it's because God put you there. And it is his desire that you would act according to his instructions. Of course, this is most important when it comes to the church. No officer in the church should ever be telling people to do things that go against God's word or aren't strictly in keeping with it. We have no authority. Understand this. We have no authority to command beyond that which God has told us. Whenever, therefore, we command people to do things that go against God's word, we are no longer good leaders. We are tyrants. And that is a terrible thing indeed. Well, God blessed Asa. He blessed him with a long reign. You'll notice as we go through 1 Kings, or at least I hope you notice, that while the, the number of good and bad kings of Judah are nearly equal, the reign of good kings is usually long, and the reign of bad kings is usually short. Matthew Henry comments uh, very well. He says, length of days is in wisdom's right hand. And there he capitalizes wisdom. The embodiment of wisdom, of course, is God himself. Length of days is in wisdom's right hand. Honor thy father much more, thy heavenly father, that thy days may be long. Applying the fifth commandment here, we see it lived out in Asa. Now, what was it that Asa did specifically keeping the commandments of God? He didn't follow in the footsteps of his father. And he didn't do necessarily what the people in his kingdom would have considered good. After a while, behaviors that have been normalized, for instance, worshiping false gods or entering into abominable sexual practices, they become normal. The people like them. They expect them. And if people talk about taking them away, they howl. And yet he wasn't afraid to do so. What did Asa do? He started a reformation, going back to God's word. And he took away a lot of the things that his fathers had implemented and the people would have been used to. For instance, he banished the perverted persons from the land. He kicked out the sodomites, these these ritual temple prostitutes. There would have been a lot of them after two generations but he expelled them from the land. Then he removed all the idols that his fathers had made. Now, a lot of leaders, and you need to note this, have pressed for reform out there. That's an easy thing to do. We can press for reform outside the communities that are most important to us. You need to change, not we need to change. 
He could have pressed for reform in the society, but not inside the court, and certainly not inside his family. But he does. The reform that he presses for is a sweeping reform, reform within his own family, reform that hurts, reform that offends the members of the family. Asa was the kind of leader who loved the Lord more than anything else, including the members of his own family. One of the things that I hope you notice as you read the gospel is the number of times that Jesus points out that he who loves mother or father or brothers more than me, or children, for instance, is not worthy of me. Our calling is to love the Lord our God more than anything else in the world. I've said it before, I'm sorry to say it again, but it's still true and always will be. It should be the case that a husband can look at his wife and say, honey, you'll always be number two in my heart. And she can look at him and say, you too, honey. And it'd be an honest declaration. It should be the case that we love nothing in this world more than we love the Lord. And Asa indicated that by being willing to do his will no matter what. But the interesting thing is, if we do love the Lord our God with all our heart, then what we do, even if the people we're we're doing it to or for, even if they don't like it, it will actually be for their good. The people may not have liked all of their idols being removed. I'm sure Ma'aka was, was horrified when he cut down the Asherah pole and so on and then took her position away because she was a terrible influence, put her out of the court. I'm sure she was not happy. She was his grandmother, and here he's doing these things to her. And yet they were for her own good if she could only see it, and certainly for the good of the people. He didn't only forbid evil, incidentally. He encouraged good. He brought in the dedicated things his father had taken from the Ethiopians. He'd won a great victory over them. Abijam had done so, and yet he had dedicated these things, gold and silver, but hadn't put them in the temple treasury. Apparently there was a budget shortfall, and he felt he needed to hang on to these things. Well, his son Asa takes these things, and also utensils and things that he had, gold and silver of his own, And he puts them in the temple treasury. He gives them to God. He is not just interested in tearing down idolatry. But, and this is the other side, building up true worship. And that's the way reform must work. Now, was Asa perfect? No. The Bible, again and again. And note this. Whenever it speaks of David. For instance, we had a a mention of David. And it talks about how much he loved the Lord, how he followed him. But he also says, you know, he made a grievous error. No, wait, not a grievous error. It wasn't a mistake. He sinned grievously in the matter of the wife of Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba. It shows us his sins. And the Bible tells us about Asa's sins as well. He left the high places where the people of Judah worshipped God instead of going to the temple like God had commanded them to do. There was only one place in all of Judah where the people were supposed to worship God, but that one place, the temple, might have been far away from a particular village or town. It's so much easier if we can just go up to the altar up there and worship him. We've got some Levites. They're willing to do it, etc., and so on. It's compromise. He didn't push as hard as he could have. He clearly, in that sense, he was like uh, Elizabeth I of England, good Queen Bess, 
who, after her sister Bloody Mary had swerved England back into Roman Catholicism and burned uh, hundreds of Protestants in Smithfields in London, she brought back the Protestant faith. But she did not want a thorough reformation. She wanted just enough reformation. She wanted to keep all of the, the images, the gold, the glitter, the, the smells, the bells, the vestments, and so on. Protestant religion with papist trappings. And the Puritans were not, not happy about this. They wanted a thoroughgoing reformation according to the word of God. But she ju judged it as politically inexpedient to do so. And clearly, at some point, Asa said, well, this is far enough. I don't want to go any further. Perhaps he did not want to risk a rebellion. He did not trust the Lord that far. Let that not be the case with you. There are so many times we say, I can't do this thing that the Lord has commanded because of the results in a this-worldly sense. How many businessmen, Christian businessmen, have made decisions, for instance, I'll give you a low-hanging fruit example to stay open on the Lord's Day. Because they say to themselves, if we close on Sunday, our competitors will get an advantage over us. Eventually, we'll lose market share, we'll go out of business, and then all of those families that depend upon me, including my own, will be in poverty. I'm pleased to say that men like Truett Cathy didn't believe that. I'm not sure that his family members are entirely on board, but they kept the policy in place. Chick-fil-A is not open on Sunday, and yet they are the number one fast food restaurant in America. I'm not trying to pump up the Chick-fil-A worshipers in the congregation, <laughs> but, or their employees. But nonetheless, this is a company that has shown, yes, actually you can close on Sunday and still not lose your market share. The Lord can provide. And he will if we only trusted him. The trouble is we, we, never, we never test. <laughs> we never actually, all right, Lord, I'm going to do it. I, I don't think it's going to work. We're like, we don't do what Peter said, did. Remember the Lord told him, you know, put down your net over there. And put your net in the sea again, Peter. You've been out all night. And Peter says, oh, Lord, we've been fishing all night and we've caught nothing. But nevertheless, at your word, we'll do it. And suddenly the net is full to overflowing. So many Christians are like, no, Lord, I'm sorry. We've been out all night. We're too tired. We're coming in. We're done. They never put the net down. They never try. Note, Henry says this also that we need to take, uh, to take on. That is Matthew Henry. He says, if we come up to the graces of those that have gone before us, it will be our praise with God, though we have come short of their gifts. Asa was like David, though he was neither such a conqueror nor such an author, for his heart was perfect with the Lord all his days. That is, he was both cordial and constant in his religion. What he did for God, he was sincere and steady and uniform and did it from a good principle with a single eye to the glory of God. One of the things that the Bible tells us is we don't all have to be equally spiritual superheroes uh, in the kingdom in order to be doing God's work. Um, now, does that mean that our attitude should be to strive for mediocrity? Should we try to, you know, get in just under the wire every single time? And the answer is no, but it doesn't, it also means that a man doesn't have to be Jonathan Edwards to be a good pastor. It means that you don't have to be Jim Elliot to actually partake of evangelism and be used by the Lord in going to, to people with the gospel. We don't all have to be equally gifted 
We can preach even if we don't have the verbiage of a, a Whitfield or a Spurgeon. Would that we were all spiritual giants, but we're not all equally gifted. Asa was a good king, nonetheless, even though he was not as good a king as David. Uh, what I would ask you to do when it comes to Christianity is don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Just because you can't be the greatest at something doesn't mean that you have no ability to do it. Be willing to strive for the Lord in any event. Now, I'm going to make uh, it's a connected application. Um, and in this, it's going to offend some people. I, I know that. Um, I, I'm going to strive not to offend 100% of the congregation here. I, I don't actually seek to offend people. But there's a principle that I, I need to set out before you. If, when it comes to the evils that are going on within our society, sometimes even within our congregation or a denomination, if I were only to address those evils that weren't actually present or that had no hold on our hearts, were not present within families and individuals, I would be of no use to you whatsoever. I could actually spend all of my time making applications that don't even press on the evils of the day at all. I could, I could say things that would make us all smile, hopefully make us all smile, and just let it, leave it at that, you know. It was a little boring, but, you know, he didn't roll up my feathers, didn't step on my toes, and then he had that nice anecdote about the grandmother, not Ma'aka, but, you know, cookies and puppies and rainbows and so on. I could do that but it wouldn't do you any good. Ma'aka, I'm sure, was very upset about having her idols removed, but if he had not done that, he would not have been keeping true to his calling as a leader. And if I didn't offend people occasionally with the word of God, I would not be keeping true to my calling. So here we go. Are you ready? All right. Um, Let me ask this. Are you setting a good example for those under you? Do you perhaps not think of yourself as a leader? You say, well, I, I, you know, I'm not a leader. I, I don't lead anybody. I'm sorry. Um, well, I have to tell you this. If you're a husband, you are a leader. If you are a dad, you are a leader. If you are a mom, you are a leader. If you are a boss or an officer, you are a leader. If you're an NCO, you are a leader. If you are a teacher... You are a leader. I could go on and on and on with examples like that. If there are people who answer to you, people who you have been given to instruct, people you are responsible for, you are leading, whether or not you think of yourself as a leader. How, then, are you leading them? Are you leading them according to what the Word of God says is good? Or are you leading them according to your own ideas, perhaps tyrannically? Are you enforcing your rules because they're your rules? When a child asks you, why should I do that? Do you say, because I said so! Rather than saying, because the law of God says that we should do this. And daddy has to obey the law of God. As for me and my house, we will, we will serve the Lord. And I say so. <laughs> On top of all that. Remember this, brothers and sisters, the more time we spend with people, the more we influence them. Uh, Phil Riken wrote this. He said, although children sometimes fail to admire their parents, they never fail to imitate them. I often say this. Your kids will not grow up to be who you want them to be. They'll grow up to be 
mirrors of who you are in so many different respects. One way that God, the children are certain to follow their parents is in the commission of sin, which has an intergenerational influence. Sin takes a somewhat different shape in each person's life, of course, but we all share the same fallen nature. The more time we spend with people, the more we are influenced by their depravity. It should not be the case, therefore, that in your leadership, you are leading to the corruption or encouraging the corruption of those people who are in your care. And that's why it's critically important for us as leaders to pursue godliness personally so that we might model it for others, so they might see it. One of the things that God did for me was he placed mentors in my life. I have to tell you, neither of my parents were evangelical Christians. They did not model Christianity for me. God gave me mentors who modeled practical godliness before me and gave me something to imitate so that, as Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I knew they were following Jesus, so I followed them. Not just the children in your home, you should be thinking of this, but actually the people in your workplace should see you as a model for godliness. In your church, you may not be a parent, but do you realize if you're an adult or a big brother or somebody who's in the tweens or moving up in the teens, the kids who are younger than you, they look at your example. It's been centuries since I was a child, obviously. (laughs) But at one time, you know, I was about this big, And somebody who was 12 was like that big. And I wanted to be like them in everything. I wanted to play the games they played. I wanted to speak the way that they spoke. Usually not for the good. But they were a model for me as well. Do you realize that older children, younger children are following you as well. And listening to you. And your habits, they'll pick them up as well. We pass on, regardless of whether or not we think about it, we pass on a spiritual legacy, and we have a responsibility before God. Now, this is the hard thing also. Our responsibility to follow God doesn't stop when it's family members, okay? People whom we love, people who will offend. You remember that time when the members of the family of Christ, his mother, Mary, and his brothers came because they heard that the (laughs) the Pharisees were seeking to kill Jesus, and they'd heard that he was out of his mind, the things that he was saying. So they, they had come to take him home. They were going to take him back to Nazareth and, and we'll forget all of this Messiah stuff. And so what happened? In Matthew 12, 46, we read, while he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with, with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Do you hear that? Whoever does the will of my father in heaven. That was what was most critical. Not my will, but thine be done, said Christ in the garden. And whose good did that work for? Yours and mine. He who does the will of the Father is somebody who is doing not just the right thing, but that which is best for those who are in his family, entrusted to his care. Now, I I put this all before you because that's what a good leader does. He follows the commandments of God, regardless of the cost of doing so, whether it costs him his job, whether it costs him the the hatred uh, of, of a family member. 
Yet he does it. And I have to tell you, I'm bringing this up specifically because this generation is failing horrendously in this respect. Horrendously. I I am hearing Christians in particular responding to the, the, the sexual freefall that we are in, in the worst of all possible ways. Simply saying, because I love them, I'll let them do it. Or when they are blackmailed, when a parent is blackmailed emotionally by their child or a counselor, if you don't do this thing, they'll kill themselves. Now, let me, let me ask you this question. If Ma'aka saw the, the, the soldiers going out to cut down her Asherah pole and to, to get rid of the, the shrine temple prostitutes and so on, if she had said to her grandson, if you cut that down, I'm going to kill myself, should he have stopped? <gasps> Grandma! Oh no! <laughs> I cannot do what the Lord is telling me to do! Bye bye, Judah! I, obviously not. Wives, if your husband came home and said to you, Honey, I think we need to have an open relationship. My counselor says the same thing. I need an open relationship. So I'm going to be bringing other women into our relationship, okay? Do you, do you understand? And if you don't do that, my counselor's afraid I might kill myself. Oh, honey, of course. As many women as you want. <laughs> as long as you don't kill yourself. Brothers and sisters, would any of you do that? Sisters, please tell me you would not enter into that kind of hideous codependency. May it never be. May ganoito. No, when somebody threatens to do evil, if we don't join them in evil, that's wrong. So what's going on? Well, we are looking at one of the devil's most devilish schemes working so well in our nation. In Gen Z, we talked about, uh, you know, surveys and so on. Amongst Gen Z, it used to be that in any of the different population groups, only about 2% of the population, max, identified as LGBTQIA, somewhere on that, that spectrum, 2%. With Gen Z today, it's up to 21%. And that's the statistics that were taken in 2021, two years ago. With the geometric progression, I would imagine it's 25 or 30 I have spoken to kids who have actually said that they identify as bi in school because they have to get social credit somehow. They're just hoping that nobody notices they don't you know, actually date members of their own sex, even though they may put that on. I was listening to uh, uh, smart Canadian, he, uh, <laughs> uh, Jordan Peterson, I'm so sorry. Uh, his podcast, and he had on somebody, and they, he was saying, you know, exponentially, if you look at the, at the numbers, generationally, he said, two generations, if we continue the same level of, of progress in the L- progress, LGBTQ category, the majority will be gay, or identifying as something on that particular <coughs> spectrum in two generations, if the numbers continue to add up. Because what has our society done? It has shifted entirely over to the other side. Now you get social credit. You don't get any social credit for being cisgender and so on. Now, many parents are saying, well, 
that's, that's out there. You don't really need to talk about that. That's not our family. That, that, that kind of stuff doesn't come into my family. Rubbish. Absolute rubbish. Let me, let me show you a generational thing. I think it can work. I, haven't, I, I, didn't, I didn't plot this out. All right. So be ready to look around you. Wake up if you're asleep. Um, here's the question. All right. How many of you know who Mr. Beast is and have seen one of his videos? All right, take a look at the generation there. The majority of people who raise their hand are under 30. Did you notice that? How many of you know who Mr. Beast's co-star in the videos is? Anybody? Chris. <laughs> there you go. Chris Tyson. Chris recently came out as trans. He left his wife and his kids. He's going through now this very high-profile transformation. And Mr. Beast, who does all these videos, uh, Mr. Beast does videos where he does things like he'll, he'll get a giant globe of cash that's you know, floating around and then drop people in and say, you've got 20 minutes to grab as much cash as you possibly can. He'll draw a circle on the floor in Best Buy and says, you know, uh, you've got, uh, you can, I'll buy everything that you can put in that circle. And you know, they'll, they'll create this pyramid of Xboxes and stuff like that. It's the kind of stuff he does. People love it. They watch it. And now he's pushing transgenderism through that particular channel. And your kids are getting it. If your kids go on YouTube Kids, the algorithm immediately shoots them towards transgenderism. The gay agenda is being pushed so heavily in our schools. I, I, you know, unless you're in a rural school where you know that all of the teachers are secretly following a, a Bible-based worldview, including the counselor and the principal, you can virtually be assured that your kids in a public school are absorbing every single day the LGBTQ agenda as normed. How are parents responding? Not with the kind of leadership that they should. If your child came to you because there was a social contagion where they said, you know, everybody's chopping off their leg, at least one leg, okay, and they're, Mom, Dad, I as a one-legged person, and I need the surgery to make it happen so that my body conforms to my delusion. They'd never put it that way, but that's what they're doing. What parent would say to their child, I love you, honey. I don't believe we should be chopping legs off. But if that's the only way you're going to be happy, let's take your leg off. And then signing you up for surgeries. But that, believe it or not, is how Christians are doing it. Or they're like, oh, I don't think you should take your entire leg off. Couldn't we just remove a few toes or something like that? A compromise? Maybe a few inches, the front, the back, and so on. Maybe a gradual reduction in, in leg length. But that's what we're doing. Instead, we should be sitting down and saying to our children, this is evil. This is a social contagion. There's an agenda behind it. Do you know, my child, that if you go down this path, the chances that you will be a Bible-believing Christian on the way to heaven are virtually nil, and the devil knows that. And those who are politically in his, his camp, they know that too. Brothers and sisters, we are in a, a time where we need to be exercising a sacrificial leadership, a willingness to tell people the things that they don't want to hear, no matter what the cost is, following the example that God has set before us, doing the right thing. I want to give you four, four things that you've got to remember when it comes to your children, four things that we must be doing. 
I've lost my page here. Okay, the first is this. Nothing your child or anyone else says or does, threatens you with, can force you to sin, either by commission or omission. If somebody handed you a box and said, press the button and 2,000 people will be blown to smithereens and then placed a gun against your head and said, push the button or else, they still can't force you to do that awful sin. That's still a choice that you're making. Nobody can force you to sin. Remember that. And nobody should be forcing you to sin. Secondly, we must be truth tellers, especially when it comes to the people that we are responsible for, even when it hurts their feelings, even when it goes against what they want. Thirdly, because someone we love is involved in a sin, that doesn't make the sin less of a sin. And also, it doesn't stop making the answer to sin, repentance, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And fourthly, sin is always sin. And that includes sexual sins. I am the Lord, I change not. He tells us again and again, the commandments have not ceased to be the moral law. And they are still all true. All sexual sins will forever remain sexual sins. Time and tide and social values don't change that. So when a child comes to you and says, I want to transition, or I think I'm gay, or something like that, it should lead to lots and lots of conversation, uh, gospel-centered conversation, a frank discussion of reality, uh, talking about sin and goodness and so on, the moral law, and all of these things, and oppressing that child towards the right decision. It also should involve us asking questions like, what on earth is my child watching? Who is my child playing with? What's going on at my child's school? Things like that. And then if you need to move 500 miles away to take your child out of that environment, do it. Honestly. If you need to save your child from the sexual morass by making radical decisions for your life, then do that. But do not allow your child to, in essence, become one of those perverted persons that Asa kicked out of the kingdom. That is awful. And remember, those perverted persons were, were Hebrews. They were Jews. So the responses that we give, that will depend on age, but there, there should be a, a willingness to tell the truth no matter what. And we need to remember that as people make sinful decisions, they are making self-harming decisions. Just, in fact, even greater. Just taking a leg off is actually less harmful to a child than a full medical transition as they're trying to imitate the other sex and all the things that go along with it. It used to be, as many have pointed out, that when somebody was deluded enough to think that they were a kangaroo, you wouldn't sit down with them and say, okay, it's going to take a lot of surgeries, but I think we can get you looking sort of like a kangaroo. A little bit. Oh, thank you. No, it's actually, they would sit down with them and say, you're actually a child of God. You're a human being. You're actually the apex of the creation. You were created in the image of God just as God wanted you. You're not merely a kangaroo. And nothing that we can do is going to make you into a kangaroo. You will be a travesty of a kangaroo. You won't even be a good kangaroo. You won't be able to jump like one, and certainly you're not going to be able to gestate little babies in your pouch. It's not going to happen. God didn't intend for you to be a kangaroo. He intended for you to be a little boy, a 
or a little girl or whatever you are. You are the way God intended you to be. You are special. You are perfect. You are the one whom God is working in right now. And I am your parent. And so we're not going to have any kangaroo nonsense in our household. <laughs> Instead, we are going to follow the Lord. And we are going to trust in the one who is greater than any of the leaders that God gave to Israel. The Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, I do pray, Lord, that you would help us to be good leaders wherever we are. And to remember to follow the example of the best of all leaders, the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that it is virtually impossible that I didn't offend somebody here or online with what I was saying. Because I know it goes so contrary to everything that society is preaching right now. But I pray, Lord, that you would help me not to fear uh, to speak if it's in accordance with your, your word. And I pray, Lord, that I would never simply push my own opinions. May it be, O oh Lord, that all of us desire to be like Asa in that the respect that we want to do what you told us to do. Because we love you and because we know that you mean our good. Our time here on earth is very short. Let us then strive to run our race, looking to Christ and following his commandments. And, O oh Lord, may it be the case that if there is someone here who has not yet surrendered to him, who is still struggling, who is seeking answers in the world and, and all the counterfeits that the devil puts before them, or is struggling to maintain their own righteousness, hoping that someday they will be good enough to make it into heaven, let them know that, oh Lord, the best things that we do are still tainted by sin and all of our righteousnesses are just filthy rags. Unless we accept the gift of salvation from Christ, we have no hope. May they know that. May they believe that. May they close with him today.